When you were a child, I'm betting it was rather easy for you to make friends. My, one of my younger brothers, which one shall remain nameless because one of my brothers is in fact in the room, uh, when he was young, uh, was playing in one of those McDonald's playgrounds and uh, came back. Now, of course, my family was there just by itself, but there were a bunch of kids playing in the playground and came back and my mother asked him how he was doing and he said, oh, I'm just, I'm just playing with my friends. He'd never met any of those children before, of course, but he found it very easy to make friends with them uh, almost instantly. Uh, what happens when we grow older? Why does it become harder for us to make friendships? Some of the friendships that we have from our childhood or maybe from high school or college or, or a job that we're no longer at, some of those friendships last and even deepen and those can be very, very satisfying relationships. But others kind of wither away and you meet those people later, you might run into them and you enjoy catching up with them perhaps, but you sense that your life has moved on and there now is no longer a kind of communion with them. Is that a good thing for us or a bad thing? Many of us could identify friends, I mean, if you, if you just asked people to categorize the friends in their lives, they probably would come up with a list like, well, I have childhood friends, I have family friends, I have church friends, maybe, I have work friends, uh, I have Facebook friends, whether they're real friends, that's another question. <laughs> I have casual friends, I have going out friends. Some of my, my, uh, my college friends would tell me that, you know, I have this particular person that we love to go out clubbing together. And we don't really spend time together aside from that, but we like the same clubs, we like to do the same you know, nightlife, and so there's a kind of friendship based on that. There are lots of friends that probably we, we would call friends, but really are just sort of acquaintances, people who we know something about, we know their name, we know their face, we've had conversations with them. And then you might say we have best friends or deep friends, lifelong friends. We could also think maybe about uh, politicians, in this political climate, you often hear politicians talking about my friend so-and-so. Uh, those don't usually seem to be authentic friendships because, um, you know, one presidential candidate on a debate stage at the beginning of the season says, oh, this other candidate is my friend. And then a month later, they are at each other's throats trying to cut each other's heads off. That is not a, a, a sign of an authentic friendship, as I'm sure we all would agree. Sometimes you meet a used car salesman who will say, my friend, this is such a good deal. What can I do so that you will walk off the lot today with a new car, you know, or a used, a new car for you anyway? Is he really your friend? Well, actually, there's a whole tradition of reflecting on friendship, starting with Aristotle, but including Thomas Aquinas, reflecting on friendship in a, in a philosophical way, also informed by Christian principles for Aquinas, not, of course, for Aristotle. 
Uh, and reflecting on the relationship, very important relationship between friendship and love. And that's why I wanted to start talking about uh, this talk, which is on the secrets to true love, by talking about friendship. Because in fact, our relationships of love should be friendships. It's tricky today to say that I love my friend. You're often misunderstood when you say that because the word love itself in our culture is very misunderstood and, and very often misused. So either it's totally common, so like, I love that song. I love cinnamon raisin bagels. You know, I love pizza. And I love my friend. Is that the same kind of thing? The same kind of love? Or saying I love my friend is taken to mean something romantic or erotic. And often that has been sort of appropriated by that, that one realm of, of human relationships. So we probably should begin by reflecting on the, the senses of this word love and what it could be referring to, to kind of clarify what we're talking about. I can say I love this pizza and that makes sense. And there is something true about saying that I, I love this pizza. But the question is, what is it about the pizza that I love? Do I love the pizza for its own sake? I just love the good of the pizza? <laughs> Not really. I mean, what I'm really saying is that I love what the pizza is doing for me. I love the way it tastes. I love the way it nourishes my body. I love the way it makes me feel. Uh, or whatever. And so when the pizza is getting moldy in the refrigerator, I don't love it anymore. I'm perfectly happy to throw it in the trash. So that kind of love obviously is not ordered towards the willing the good of the pizza. It's, it's what the pizza is doing for me. We could call that a kind of pizza love. And often we use the word love in exactly that sense. I love that song. You might even say, I love that, uh, I love that restaurant. I love that city. I love this friend in that sense. Then there are deeper senses of love. You could think about the love, you know, if we want to go immediately very deep, you could think about the love that a mother has for her infant baby. Now, an infant baby is a wonderful, lovable thing, but also a lot of work and takes a lot of time. And in the middle of the night, when the baby is crying and needs to be fed or needs to be changed, the baby is probably not doing that much for the mother. So if a mother only loves her child in the same way she loves pizza, we would have a hard time explaining why she gets up in the middle of the night to take care of her baby. Why does she do that? Is it just because she wants the baby to stop crying so she can get back to sleep? That would be, uh, I mean, misfact what's happening. But I think more often there is a, a sense that a mother has that if my baby is suffering, I am suffering. And that is 
it gives us an insight into what we're really talking about with love. So true love begins to desire the good of the other as my good. That's, I think, the, the dividing line or what marks off true love. Okay, we can say much more, but that initial clarification is already very helpful. Thomas Aquinas uh, has a number of other things that he would add about what is love, speaking, just on the natural level. So we're not yet talking about uh, divine love or charity. We're just talking about our relationships. Today, we often consider love to be principally a feeling or an emotion. And it is that. That is an important sense of the word. Even for Aquinas, when he first starts talking about love, he does so in the prima secundae of the Summa Theologiae. So we're getting a little technical here. If you know the works of Thomas Aquinas, this great masterwork, which is the Summa Theologiae, it's the summary of theology, and it's broken up into three parts. And the middle part, the second part, has a, a first part of the second part and a second part of the second part. Very elegant medieval titles, right? Um, they, they could have used, um, you know, the science of marketing, maybe, when they were coming up with these titles. Okay, so the, the first part of the second part, Aquinas addresses love as an emotion, as a passion. And he explains that it arises from, uh, it's, the, it's the passion that we have when we perceive a good and we desire it. So even on a sensible level, we can have that kind of passion. When you're hungry and you see the pizza, you begin to desire the pizza. And you, it's not like you have to be really reflective about this. Uh, and if you've ever been really, really hungry or really, really thirsty or really, really tired or whatever, you know that those bodily appetites can sort of short-circuit all the other things that you're thinking about. And you, you move towards those things. That's, that's a kind of uh, low level of love, but it is a, a sense of love. Love that is emerging even from my, from my body. My body needs the food, and so it's pushing me to reach out for it. So love involves reaching out for what I regard as good at least on the sensible level, even my body hungers for food, regards it as good. But we can ascend in our understanding of love from just an emotion or a feeling, a passion that comes from the body, to something that we do on a more spiritual level. Because we are creatures who are not just embodied creatures, not just animals. We are animals, but we are rational animals. That's the classical definition of what a human being is. So we do share things with lower animals, like getting hungry, and we also have something that they don't have, which is the capacity to understand abstractly and to desire abstractly. You've all had the experience of loving something that your body doesn't probably want. Well, exercise 
is one example of this. People who go to the gym suffer. I mean, you let's not pretend the gym is just all fun and games. Sometimes you go to the gym and you suffer. But why? No pain, no gain. It's because you've decided, I want whatever the exercise is going to give me. And so I'm willing to deprive myself. Same thing with dieting. It's the same thing with medicine. If you have cancer, one of the brothers in my house, an older priest, uh, just finished a, a round of chemo treatment for cancer. If you have cancer, the doctor sits down with you and tells you very seriously, like, okay, this is, this is what you're facing. If you do nothing, your life expectancy is going to be short and you're going to really begin to suffer soon. You may not feel that right now. You may feel fine. But we've detected the cancer in you. So what I'm proposing to you is that we put these chemicals into your body which are going to make you violently sick. And you're going to go through six months of like almost being bedridden with weakness because of the, because of the, the violence of the chemicals to your body. But they're going to kill the cancer cells. If you, if you would decide to do that, it's because you are choosing what you regard as good even though your body is not telling you that I like this or I want this. That's a form of loving. You are now making an act of the will and this is, for Aquinas, what the will always does. The will is not just, we think of it usually as a, you know, we talk about free will, you're choosing. Yes, it involves choice, but above all, the will is the faculty of desiring, of loving. It's the loving with your mind. Now, when we've put love into that context, just on a human level, we can see how we can love other people on, in, in these various ways. You can love another person because you like what that person is doing for you. You can love another person because of the pleasure that that person gives you. But you can also ascend to a higher spiritual level and love that person because with your mind, you see that person is good. And that is really a much more uh, beautiful way to love another. Uh, so, in fact, love always has to do with seeing the good and desiring the good. There's a, uh, an important um, consequence of this. It's kind of a philosophical point, but since, since we're, I hope none of you are too averse to making a philosophical point, I thought maybe we'd look at the, the first text that is on your handout. This is where St. Thomas Aquinas talks about how your appetite, even your bodily appetite, but also your spiritual appetites, the appetites of your mind, your desires, always regard something that is good. And where we're going with this is we will then see the connection between love, true love, and goodness. So this is from the Summa Theologiae. He writes, the will is a rational appetite. By that, he means it's the appetite of your intellect. Now, every appetite is only of something good. The reason of this is that the appetite is nothing else than an inclination of a person desirous of a thing towards that thing. Imagine uh, a hungry person looking at pizza. Uh, you, you have an appetite for the pizza. You reach out for the pizza. 
Now everything, now every inclination is is to something like and suitable to the thing inclined. In other words, you don't desire when you're hungry to eat sand. Sand is not an appropriate food. No one needs to be taught that. Everyone knows that they want to eat tasty food, and it's not a matter of your cultural formation to learn that. Now, maybe you need to have your taste educated so that you love French food more than McDonald's, um, but uh, I, I, I think that's a growth in spiritual, uh, you know, stature. Uh, if if you were to do that, but in any case, no one desires things that are inedible when they're hungry. Since, therefore, everything inasmuch as it is being and substance is a good, it must needs be that every inclination is to something good. Aquinas is saying that it's not possible for you to desire something that is not a good. You cannot desire an evil as an evil. Okay, now I'm hearing your objection. Wait a second, Father. I know all kinds of people who choose things that are obviously bad. Doesn't that disprove this point? Well, let's read the next paragraph. Aquinas continues, it must be noted that the sensitive appetite, okay, those are like your desire for food, for sleep, for touch, uh, other pleasures of touch, and so forth, the desires of your senses, as also the intellective or rational appetite, that is your, your minds, what your mind judges and then reaches out for, which we call the will, follows from apprehended form. It's when we, we understand, we apprehend what it is that we're encountering, whether by our senses or with our mind. Therefore, the animal or voluntary appetite, so either your sense, your senses or your will, tends to good which is apprehended. Consequently, in order that the will tend to anything, it is necessary not that this be a true good, but that it be apprehended as good. You don't desire what you don't know, and you can desire things that are bad if you think they're good for you in some respect. So, if you take the most extreme case, someone who desires to injure themselves, uh, say, cutting themselves, or someone who desires to commit suicide, what is the person actually desiring? Is it desiring evil as an evil? Probably not. Normally, uh, in cases like that, you have someone who's experiencing maybe such psychic distress that the physical pain of cutting myself is better, in a way, than the distress I am feeling. Or someone who has experienced so much, so many wounds that I feel like I can't feel anything anymore. And if I cut myself, at least I feel something. So, in fact, the pain is not desired insofar as it's uh, just a wound to the body. It, it is, there is something desirable there. It may not be really good for the person, but it's at least perceived as a good in some respect. Aquinas' claim is that you, you can never get away from desiring the good. You're always going to desire good in some respect. And the question is... Uh, figuring out what is really good for you versus things that only appear to be good but in fact are not. And this is 
the root principle of love. The ultimate fruit of love for Aquinas, and, and once we finish this, we'll um, be able to, to draw some very interesting consequences from Aquinas' thought on friendship. The ultimate fruit of love for Aquinas is joy. Why does he say that? Because love makes us reach out for something good, and joy is what we have when we possess the good and rest in it. And that's very interesting because, as we'll see in the second talk today, this is something that even God does. So there is joy in our lives when we have a deep friendship. There's also joy in God because he possesses his perfect goodness. And love causes us to have a kind of union with the things that we love. Uh, so you reach out for things outside of you to possess them. But when you're loving a person or a spiritual reality, you, you can have a kind of spiritual union. And I think we've all experienced that with our friends. That is showing us, pointing us to higher realms of friendship. Okay, so um, from this discussion of love, we can talk about different types of friendship. And the classical ways to divide up friendship is not based on like my high school friends, my family friends, my work friends. It's based on the, the sort of interior character of the friendship. And Aristotle, uh, and Aquinas follows Aristotle on this, came up with three categories of friendship. So you might think about your own friends and which category do they belong in. The first are friendships of usefulness or utility. This is like a, a business colleague. I am friends with this person. He scratches my back, I scratch his back, we both are mutually enriched by our relationship, and it's all, it's all good. I uh, led a pilgrimage to the Holy Land a number of years ago, and uh, I was puzzled by the way that the, the restaurant owners or the shop owners, when our pilgrimage group came through, they would, they would come and take me into the back room and sit me down at a spe and they would offer me a glass of wine or they would offer me something to eat and say, oh, my friend, it is so good that you are here. We're looking forward to your visit and going on and on about this. And I mean, it's a culture that is based on hospitality and friendship, which is beautiful. We don't, we Americans have a much more like arm's length uh, sort of gruffness about our commercial relationships. Uh, but in fact, are those you know, when he's saying, oh, you're my friend, have a glass of wine, what is the character of our friendship? Well, he's probably interested in making sure that this tour group spends a lot of time in his shop and buys a lot of his merchandise. So it's a useful friendship. There's, there are real marks of friendship there, uh, but it's not the fullest kind of friendship. In fact, in a useful friendship, what are we loving? This is the question to ask yourself. Usually, we are loving the good that that person can give to me. Aristotle remarks, such friendships are unstable and easily dissolved. Why is that? As soon as you stop being useful to me, you stop being my friend. And we've probably all experienced friends who have treated us that way. I thought that he was really my friend, 
and it turns out he was just using me for something else. Fairweather friends. This is actually a form of self-love. That's, that's spiritually good to know about ourselves if we start to detect that in ourselves. And I'm sure all of us have certain friendships of utility. I mean, it's almost unavoidable. We don't want to just have a, an arm's length transaction with people. It's good to be friendly with them, but at least to recognize that um, this is not the deepest form of friendship and maybe we should try to move it in a better direction. The second category of friendship is friendships of pleasure. Now, this is similar to friendships of utility, but it's actually a little better. Why? It's not just that I love this person because of the pleasure that the person can give me. That's a little bit like thinking of uh, the useful friendship. But perhaps I love being in this person's presence because he's so fun. Because I always have a good time with him. That's a little closer to what Aristotle's really getting at. It's like a useful friendship, but actually it's, it's closer to a real communion. Because at least we have the communion in those moments when we're just having a good time together. Listen to what Aristotle says about this. With regard to lovers, the friendship often fades away after the prime of youth is gone, since the sight of the beloved no longer brings pleasure. Isn't that true about some romantic relationships? Now, it may not be just a hedonistic pleasure that we're talking about. I mean, people might think in a gross way that a friendship of pleasure is talking about like sexual or erotic acts. Okay, it, it could be some of that, but it, it doesn't have to be that. And how many romantic relationships are based on the, the way that this person makes me feel? I feel so good. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a, there's a, a normal human reality that we're, we're grasping there. And we should feel good around our friends. But if that is the heart of the friendship, do you see the danger that the friendship is in? In fact, once again, it's a form of loving myself. I love the other person because of the way that this he or she makes me feel. Now, then, true friendships. This is the third category. What does Aristotle and, and what do, does Aquinas think a true friendship is based on? It's based on loving the good of the other or the other as good. Wishing good for my friend for her own sake. In other words, I'm no longer concerned principally about what I am getting. I am seeing the good in my friend and willing it. Now, this is not just a kind of um, esoteric or, or totally um, unselfish love because, uh, as Aquinas recognizes, we regard our friend's good as our good. That's what the mother of the infant baby does, she regards suffering for her baby as a form of suffering for her. And what is good for her baby, she regards as good for her. So it's not that she's just looking out for herself, but she is so identified, 
her baby and her baby's good with her own good, that her acts of will to desire the good for herself include now the good of her baby. Do you see what I'm saying? Your will always has to look at a good. And when you are really truly friends with somebody, you have a kind of union of love that means that your friend's good becomes your good. These friendships tend to be the most long-lasting. And they are especially long-lasting when your friend is also a good person, or as Aristotle would say, is virtuous. So when a person is virtuous, it's easier to love that person because you see how good the person is. And when a friend is vicious, or when we are vicious around our friends, then it will tend to corrode our friendships and turn them into friendships of pleasure or utility. In other words, you know, if I know that you are uh, a liar and selfish and always out for yourself, how easy is it going to be for me to have that kind of authentic trust that our friendship will require? In fact, it's more likely that our friendship will turn into a, a friendship of utility or of pleasure. So being virtuous and being friends with virtuous people is one of the best recipes for building really deep and lasting friendships. But Aristotle says such friendships are rare because few people have the capacity for this sort of friendship and they require lots of time and lots of familiarity for the friendships to form. So Aristotle thinks that you need to eat a certain number of meals with a person before you can really be friends. That's actually something that the, the French and the Swiss, uh, or at least the Francophone Swiss, have figured out. I lived over in uh, Fribourg, Switzerland, which is a French-speaking part of Switzerland, and uh, we had our main meal in our religious community every day at midday with wine every day in the middle of the day. And, you know, the nice thing about it was that there needed to be no explanation for why the meal should be like a kind of slow, intentional, pleasant, fraternal encounter. That's what a meal is. We as Americans kind of have to come up with excuses to have meals like that. But in fact, I think we've got a few representatives of, of that culture with us. I think they would probably agree. Would you agree that this really does not need an explanation? It just is, in fact, what a meal uh, is. And when you have meals like that with, with people who are good people and virtuous people, uh, you, you develop friendships. That's a, there's a, an odd connection between eating and friendship. But think about it on the level of your loves. Why are you eating? Because your body needs something. And, you know, your body is hungering. Well, your soul needs something too, and that is love of other people, friendship. What sort of person could be happy without friends, Aristotle asks. No one, no one would choose to be wealthy or powerful or have all the prestige and honor in the world if it meant you could never have a friend to share it with. Those things become very empty without a friend. 
So in the same way that our bodies need food and, and there should be a kind of ritual around supplying that need, that's connected to the needs of our souls. And so our friendships do belong around the table where we are nourishing each other or nourishing ourselves. And just so that you know where we're going, there is a good reason why Jesus, on the night before he died, sat down with his friends and gave them the ultimate meal which provides communion with himself. A deep bond of love. It nourishes not just your body, but your soul. Okay, so I'm jumping ahead. Aristotle says some other very interesting things about friendships, which can be very uh, insightful for us thinking about our own friendships. He talks about uh, distance. We all have the experience of having good friends that we're now a long distance from. He says, distance does not break a friendship, but it impedes its exercise. For a real friendship, however, living near each other is important. We really do need to be with our friends. He says, it's easier to have many friends on the basis of usefulness or pleasure but harder to have true friendships with many people because those relationships take a lot of time. We need to give time to our friends. And that means that we're not going to be able to have those deep friendships, perhaps, with everybody. Now, Aquinas takes this into a supernatural uh, perspective. And he would agree that on a natural level, it's hard to have a lot of friends uh, who are deep friends. But he does think that the supernatural gift of charity, which we're going to talk about in the next hour, gives us a real and deep connection with everybody. And, and that's a kind of Christian difference that Aquinas adds to Aristotle. The next thing, and I think this is a very deep insight that Aristotle has. Friendship depends more on loving than on being loved. When both friends are intent on loving the other, they stop worrying so much about what they're getting out of the relationship. And they are thinking about the other. When you're intent on loving the other, you don't take as seriously the little slights or frictions that arise in your relationship. You're not wounded by the slights. Actually, this is a good model for a marriage, to be intent more on loving than on being loved. Now, it's hard for us because all of us are in some degree wounded. I mean, we're wounded by sin. We're wounded maybe by our, uh, our childhood. We're wounded the way our mother abandoned us at the McDonald's uh, uh, you know, play, play slide. Uh, I don't know if my brother feels that way, but... Um, <laughs> Actually, let me tell a digression. This is not about the brother who's in the room, <clears throat> but about the unintended uh, wounds that our families may. Um, this is just to inject a little levity into the conversation. Uh, my youngest brother, much younger than me, uh, in fact, he's 24 years younger than me, um, when he was maybe five or six, uh, we were going to the parish. This was just before I became a Dominican. We were going to the parish uh, nearest our home, and they had a children's liturgy every Sunday where the kids go out, you know, they have the, like, 
the minister come up at the beginning of Mass and leads all the children out, and they go and have the children's liturgy, and then they stay in the nursery, and the parents pick them up on their way to the parking lot. So for Christmas one year, my mother wanted to go to a different church, the next parish over, because they had the children's Mass at the right time, you know, basically. And at that church, uh, on this Christmas Eve Mass, they invited all the children to come up around the ambo where the priest was going to read the gospel to the children, like, sitting on the floor. Okay, so uh, my brother at, at our normal parish, he never went to the children's liturgy. He hated it. He wanted to be with the adults, okay, which was fine. We kept him with us. But on this particular Christmas Mass at the, at the, the different parish, when they called all the children up, my little brother's sitting in the middle of the pew. My mom is next to him. She says, Austin, go, go for the ch-. And he said, no, I don't want to go. She said, go, go. She pushes him out. And then he came to me and I pushed him out. And then my brother pushed him out. And the whole family pushed him out the pew. So he goes up and he sits down in the back of the circle of children. And after a minute, my mother notices that he's up there weeping, you know, just sobbing. And she went and got him and brought him back. And she said, Austin, what's the matter? He said, at the other church, when the children leave, they never come back. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, it's Christmas Eve. You've had five good years, but you are, you know. So we all have vulnerabilities and wounds that may make us uh, may, may make it hard for, may make us very needy, wanting love, and looking in our relationships for something that is going to solve that wound or validate my worth. You know, if I feel like I am not really, I doubt whether I am lovable. Many people actually do doubt that. I doubt whether God really loves me. You know, it's very interesting if you if you talk to people as a priest, you talk to people and you try and get them to say, I know that God loves me. A lot of people, they, they don't really believe that or they have a lot of trouble believing that. That is really true. Okay, we're going to talk about that in the next hour too. But if we are looking in our human relationships just for that salve for for what I know I don't have, or maybe I'm not even aware that that's what I'm looking for, but that is in fact what I'm after, it will impede our relationships from becoming true friendships because they they become friendships of utility or of pleasure. Real friendship depends more on loving than on being loved. And when we love, if we are able to just love, then uh, we can have much freer, healthier friendships. Okay, other uh, things that we discover from Aquinas about uh, friendship. Let's look at the next text on your handout. This is from the Summa Contra Gentiles, where Aquinas actually is talking here about um, the love of God, or God's love. But I've, I've excerpted just the parts the talk about human love, because we're going to talk about God's love in a minute, in in the next hour. Again, for true love, it is required that we will someone's good as his good. For if we will someone's good only insofar as it leads to the good of another, we love this someone by accident 
Per accidens is the Latin there. Just as he who wishes to store wine in order to drink it, or loves a man so that this man may be useful or enjoyable to him, loves the wine or the man by accident, but essentially he loves himself. So that's just the point that we've been talking about. Friendships of utility and pleasure are, are ultimately a form of self-love. The proper nature of love is seen to consist in this, that the affection of the one tends to the other as to someone who is somehow one with him. Therefore, the more that through which the lover is one with the one he loves is greater, the more is the love intense. Okay, that's a very difficult phrase in English, but listen to Aquinas' example. For we love those whom the origin of birth joins to us. I love my brother. I mean, we've shared a lot of time together, and so we have a, a additional reasons for our love. But I would love him even if I'd never spent any time with him just because we have the same parents. Or the way of life. I love my Dominican brothers who are sitting here in the front row because we share this way of life. Or something of the sort. So we love those people more than those whom the community of human nature alone joins to us, more than the average man on the street. You need some connection to someone to raise your love from a kind of general baseline to something more specific. And so we do have certain people that we love more intensely. This next observation is even more interesting. Again, the more the source of the union is intimate to the lover, interior to the lover, that's what Aquinas means, by so much the stronger becomes the love. Hence, at times, the love arising from some passion becomes more intense than the love that is of natural origin or from some habit, but it passes more easily. Isn't that true? Our friendships are for our siblings are not as intense as the passion that arises in a romantic relationship. But they are probably, at least, you know, if you if you're not talking about a relationship that ends in marriage, you're just talking about people that you, you fall in love with and then fall out of love with at various points in your life, they're much less stable and much, more, much less lasting than the friendship that is from that natural union. But they can be much stronger insofar as they're emerging from something within you. And, and it may be a, a real passion of the body. So we have appetites for food. We also have a, appetites for sexual union, and in fact, there's a natural explanation for that, um, but in any case, that can give rise to these passions. It does give rise to them. The next paragraph. Moreover, it belongs to love to move towards union, as Dionysius, that's a, a, a patristic writer, says. For since because of a likeness or congeniality between the lover and the one he loves, the affection of the lover is in a manner united to the one loved. His appetite tends to the perfection of the union, so that namely the union that has begun already in affection may be completed in act. When we, What Aquinas is getting at is when we have a union of affection with someone, I begin to really desire that person's good. That relationship now will sort of have a natural trajectory to bring us closer together. 
to spend more time together, and for a married couple, of course, to have that most intimate form of union between a, a man and a woman that that is even a physical as well as a spiritual union. And this produces joy. Hence, it is also the privilege of friends to take joy in another's presence in living together and in conversations. So Aquinas, um, to sort of s- sum up how he thinks friendship works, he thinks that love is is a central truth uh, or a central element of it, but that that is, it needs something in addition to love. And you get this on the, the last passage on the handout, on the second, on the back side. Where again he quotes the philosopher, that's Aristotle. According to the philosopher, not every love has the character of friendship, but that love which is together with benevolence, when to wit we love someone so as to wish good to him. Uh, What Aquinas means there is that sometimes you love someone uh, just because you want the good for yourself. Benevolence means you actually wish the good of the other. But skipping to the next paragraph, yet neither does well-wishing suffice for friendship, For a certain mutual love is requisite, since friendship is between friend and friend. And this is founded on some kind of communication. Okay, I've used this example. If you were at my talk uh, uh, back uh, in the fall, I used this example there, but I'm going to use it again. uh, So you may have heard it before. But it's possible to have a friendship that's entirely in your mind. Uh, is, Is there anyone here who's a fan of, say, Brad Pitt? I don't know if you want it. Maybe there's no one who wants to admit to being a fan of Brad Pitt here. But um, suppose we had uh, someone who was the ultimate fan of Brad Pitt, the number one fan, founder of the Brad Pitt fan club. And suppose that this person uh, learned everything she could about Brad Pitt, absolutely everything. And probably you can learn quite a lot about Brad Pitt if you go on the internet and you know do your research, you might be able to learn what his favorite you know color is, what his favorite ice cream flavor is. You might be able to learn where he went to high school, who, what was the name of his homeroom teacher when he was a freshman, all kinds of details. You can know an awful lot about Brad Pitt. You can love him uh, very passionately. You can wish his good. Does that mean that you are friends with Brad Pitt? No, because Brad Pitt has no idea who you are. And in fact, if you, if you started following Brad Pitt around, what would happen to you? You would get arrested. So friendship requires a kind of mutuality in the love. And relationships that don't have that mutuality are also uh, not real friendships. Incidentally, friendships lead to more knowledge about the person, but not necessarily knowledge about facts. Angelina Jolie uh, has a much deeper relationship with Brad Pitt than I do. Um, I have no relationship with him at all. Uh, and but, but she may not know the name of his homeroom teacher from his freshman year. That's not really that important a, a, a fact. She might know something much more interior about him, though, which gives you access to like the truth of the person. So friendship for Aquinas requires, number one, love. Number two, willing the good of the other. 
and number three, a kind of mutual communication. So let me conclude then by talking about some takeaways uh, from Aquinas and Aristotle on human friendship. Uh, the first set of takeaways is with respect to marriage, a kind of friendship that is uh, very misunderstood in our time, and I think in many ways n not flourishing as a result. Marriage is a kind of friendship, according to Aquinas. It's a unique kind of friendship, a very special kind of friendship, but it is a friendship and it needs to be based on a friendship. It usually starts with, in our culture, with a romantic desire, but hopefully it then matures into a love of the, of the good of the other. Now, incidentally, not every culture uh, takes marriage from this origin. It's a, it's a relatively recent phenomenon uh, that, that marriages would be principally based on that kind of romantic affection. I mean, the romantic, romantic can refer to a period of history and in a way, a lot of our contemporary ideas about romantic love come from that period of history. But this unique friendship, which is the relationship between a man and a woman, what makes it unique? There is a natural desire for union, even physical union, between the two, which is by its nature exclusive. And we, we sort of recognize that if there is that sort of intimate union happening outside of that relationship, it destroys the relationship. So there is something about that, the, the nature of that particular type of friendship that it calls for exclusivity and fidelity. And what is most distinctive about it is that it is the only relationship between human beings that of itself gives rise to children. So we can have all kinds of other relationships. You can try and uh, generate new life in a science lab, but it will not be because of the, the, the natural union between two persons. This is what is distinctive about the relationship between a man and a woman and why that is a particular type of friendship, something unique. But other takeaways for, for friendship. Virtuous people are better friends. And when we are friends with virtuous people, they help us be more virtuous. That means uh, that sometimes we should correct our friends. That's not easy to do. But if you really care about the good of your friend, then you want your friend to get better. Now, you don't have to correct him with a sledgehammer, but nonetheless find a way to encourage your friend to grow in virtue. Uh, another takeaway, this is I guess the third takeaway, and I think this is also very important, rejoicing in our friend's good. It's so easy for us, even with people we regard as close friends, to be a little bit envious when our friend succeeds because it wasn't my success. That kills friendship because then you are not willing the good of your friend 
as if it were your own. So if you can begin to think about your friends as people whose, you know, his good is now my good, when he succeeds, I rejoice. I succeed because my friend succeeds. That can revolutionize the way you think about your friendships. St. Thomas More was described by Erasmus in a famous phrase as born for friendship. He was famously uh, a friend, a friend to many, many people, including his political enemies, including King Henry, who in the end uh, had him beheaded. Why did Erasmus think that Thomas More was born for friendship? He was witty, he was pleasant, he was fun to be around. Even more than that, he was kind and generous, important qualities in a friend. But especially, he was understanding of others and forgiving of others. That's, I think, another takeaway from Aquinas on friendship. If we want our friends to be good and we, we look at their good, we will, we will understand them when they fail and we will be ready to forgive them when they fail. That does not mean, by the way, uh, not recognizing a wrong action as a wrong action. So being understanding and forgiving does not mean being blind or ignoring wrong when it happens. But we should only judge actions and never persons. So instead, we should always remember the essential goodness of another person and that person's capacity for good and for improvement. And then uh, we will be a good friend, a friend who is always ready to forgive and understand, even if I can't tell you that what you did was okay. Let me end with a story about Aquinas, uh, about, uh, uh, well, it's not really about um, friendship so much as believing always the best about your friend. And that is something also you should do. Always believe that your friend has done the best thing. And this is uh, uh, probably not a true story, but was told about Aquinas and I think maybe says something about his personality. He was uh, one day as a young uh, Dominican in a room with a, a number of other Dominicans and they were waiting probably for the lecture to begin. And one of the brothers said, Brother Thomas, go look out the window. There is a cow flying. And Aquinas got up and went to the window and looked out and all the other brothers laughed at him, of course. And he turned back to them and said, I would rather believe that a cow could fly than that one of my brothers would lie to me. Always thinking the best of our friends in the truth, of course, but this is the way to be a good friend, to desire their good and to rejoice in it when we discover it.